Our scripture for the morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. This is in the sort of the middle of Mark, the fifth chapter. And uh, Jesus has just gone across the Sea of Galilee, and we hear this. Listen for the word of God. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain, for he'd often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country, now there were on the hillside a great herd of swine, a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The swine herds ran off and told it in the city and the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him, but Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. So we say, thanks be to God. Change is hard. Let's just get that out there right now. Change is hard. Hard to change. Hard to change our habits. Hard to change our perspective. Hard to change our minds. Hard to change. I bet if we thought about it for a little while, we would realize, though, that pretty much all the best things in our lives have come about because we were willing to make a change over and over again in our lives. We've had the chance to change how we were living or change how we were acting or change how we were thinking. And when we did it, we were gifted with something wonderful and something new. But change is hard, despite experiencing that newness and that goodness over and over again. I, I have a good friend who loves to tell the story about a day that his son, who was in elementary school at the time, uh, had a big shock. Kansas had recently started issuing new license plates, and my friend had gone that day and gotten new ones and put them on his car, there on the back of his car, and when my friend's son walked out of the house for the first time around behind the car and saw the new license plates, he just stopped and he stared. And he said, well, this is going to take some getting used to. His parents love that story, and they just crack up every time they tell it because it's so sincere and also so hysterical. I mean, we can laugh at that little boy's shock, but also feel the realness of that moment, right? Sometimes you just want to be in a world where everything stays the same. 
Sometimes you just want to live in the world that you already know and trust. Sometimes you just want to live in the world you already know and trust. Which is exactly what our crowd in the story today was feeling. They wanted to live in the world they already knew and trusted, and they were not interested in exploring any kind of change or anything else, even if it meant welcoming in the very Son of God. The story that I just read is another healing miracle of Jesus. And it has several features that are like the other healing stories we've been considering during this series, Be Made Well. Of course, Jesus' healing, it's instantaneous, it's miraculous. He's not uh, put aside by even the biggest suffering or challenges that the people around him are facing. And, And the person that Jesus heals is somebody that's been pushed out of the community. It's somebody that's been abandoned, somebody that's been left to his own devices to fend for himself. The healing Jesus brings him then, it allows him to come back into the community. It allows him to return home. And we saw those same things at play when Jesus healed the paralytic in last week's story and when he healed the leper two weeks ago. Well, today's story, that happens not in a Jewish town, but actually in a Gentile town. Just before our reading, as I said, Jesus and his disciples had been on the Sea of Galilee, and they encountered this big storm, and Jesus calmed it with just a word. Now, of course, the Sea of Galilee is just actually a very big lake. So they were sailing across the lake, and we don't know why. We don't know where they were headed. Maybe they were even blown off course from their original destination by that giant storm. Mark doesn't tell us. All he says is that they land on the shore, and they're in this region called the Decapolis, which is ten cities, filled filled with non-Jewish people. It seems that they have landed at the shoreline very near to a cemetery, because as soon as they get off the boat, this man comes down to running to them, and it says, out of the tombs. It's no coincidence that this guy lived in a cemetery. He seemed as good as dead to the community. The scripture says he was possessed by demons, But the description we could pretty easily correlate in our minds to the way that he's suffering is some kind of very severe mental illness. The man had been so wild, so chaotic, so dangerous, that the people had tried to restrain him with shackles and with chains. Whenever I read it, it makes me think about those restraints that sometimes have to get used in hospitals to confine patients who are too high or too manic or too anxious. And people are afraid they're going to hurt themselves or hurt other people. So, you know, today we use padded cuffs and leather straps. But the trauma is the same. The worry is the same as those villagers must have faced with this man that they had tried to chain up. A situation so awful that the people didn't know what to do other than try and tie him down. But this man, he was so out of control that he had broken the chains. He had wrenched off those shackles. And so he was free from constraint, but we know he was far from free. And the neighbors knew it too. Actually, the townspeople, they could hear him howling in the night there in the cemetery, and they knew that he would hit himself with stones. He was an incredibly tortured man. But Jesus, he's not deterred. He steps off the boat, he sees the man coming toward him, and he instantly knows what's wrong, and he confronts the evil spirits gripping the man. Now, this is not a sermon about Christian response to mental illness. That's not the main point. But let me just take a moment to say, to acknowledge, that we have long struggled inside the church to respond well to people suffering from mental illness. 
Historically, in the church, we have done a very poor job of making room for, of making accommodations for, of making welcome for folks that are living with mental illness. And that's true for people that have rare disorders like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And it's true for people who live with more common mental health concerns like anxiety or clinical depression. Too often in the church, we just don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to make space for it. So, you know, you think about it, when someone has cancer, we will spend so much time asking them questions, following along on their journey of treatment, wanting to be there to support and to help. But we don't do the same thing when someone's going through mental health treatment. Or when someone has a heart attack, we come up and support the family and, and offer all the care and the love and the help that we can. But when someone goes on the psychiatric ward, we talk about it in quiet whispers in the hallway. And church, we have to do better. We just need to do better. There's nothing about mental illness that deserves shame or secrecy. Those among us who suffer with mental illness, they deserve our prayers. They deserve our support. They deserve our help. They deserve our love. But Jesus, we can see in the story, he doesn't make any distinction. The man in the Gerasene Cemetery is equal to him as the man that was the paralytic lying on the mat last week that got lowered through the roof, equal to the leper that we saw two weeks ago who had a skin disease. All Jesus sees is someone who needs help, and Jesus offers help, and he does it without a second thought. Of course, we don't understand today mental illness to be a problem of demon possession. We know it's about brain chemistry, it's about emotional processes, and what's needed is medication and talk therapy and, and prayer to move toward greater health. But possession is the worldview of the scripture, so that's what we're going to go with as we carry on. And Jesus calls out to this man, to the spirit, and, and the spirit calls back to him and cries out to Jesus, like, basically, don't hurt us. So Jesus asks, what's the demon's name? And the demon says, legion, for we are many. And with that word, not only does the man reveal the depth of his problem, you know, a Roman legion had between 4,000 and 6,000 people, but he also reveals the depth of his suffering because there was nothing good or friendly about a legion of Roman soldiers. The Romans were an occupying force in Israel. They kept the inhabitants of the country in line by violence and by taxation. They were the enemy. They were the oppressor. And that's who this man has inside of him. Well, this legion of spirits, they beg to not be cast off into a faraway country. And conveniently, there happens to be a whole herd of pigs just right there on the hillside. And so the demons say, let us go into the pigs. And Jesus, he's a good Jewish boy. He would have never eaten pork. He doesn't seem to be bothered by the idea of a bunch of possessed pigs. And so he says, go ahead, go into the hogs. It turns out the demons made a pretty big mistake because hogs don't seem to do very well with demon possession. Before you know it, they're running down the bank straight into the lake. They drown themselves, end of the pigs, end of the demons. It was a dumb move by the demons, actually, to choose pigs as their next host. But it also was a really bold move by Jesus to let the demons go into these pigs, to allow the destruction of 2,000 hogs. Now, I tried to Google this to so I would be accurate in my facts to you. I don't know if I am. So if any of you know better about hog prices, you just send me an email and correct me. But according to the Googles, 
you can get up to $600 for a full-grown hog these days. So in today's money, that would mean Jesus let $1.2 million go cascading down the bank into the lake. There were some really unhappy hog farmers and owners of those hogs nearby. It's a pretty dramatic story. It's kind of odd. It's kind of funny. <laughs> but it's what happens next in the story that's most interesting to me. The guys that were tending the hogs, they run back to town to tell this unbelievable thing that's happened. That This, this uh, man that had been shackled and chained uh, had been freed of his spirits. And when the people come back out and they see the guy... The guy that they knew used to howl in the cemetery and beat himself with stones. They see that he's dressed. They see that he's calm. They see that he's in his right mind, as the scripture says. Did you catch what the scripture says that the people do in response? Seeing this man healed, seeing him whole, seeing him healthy, were they excited? No. Were they jumping up and down with joy and celebration? Nope. Were they crying tears of relief because this man had been freed and restored to health? No, not one bit. The people, the people's reaction was simply that they were afraid. They were afraid. They were freaked out. They were overwhelmed by what had just happened, by what Jesus had just done. They were scared. They were scared at this monumental change that had taken place, afraid of the man who had caused it, afraid of what else he might be able to do. They were scared of Jesus. And so they asked him to leave. They asked him to leave. Actually, the scripture says they begged him to go back across the lake and leave their neighborhood. Go back to where you came from, I hear them saying. We don't need what you're bringing around here. They saw the results of one of Jesus' most astounding healings, taking this man who was a true danger to himself and others, who Jesus restored him to health and life, restored him to the community, and they said, no thanks, we don't want any more of what you have. So Jesus left. Let's take just a moment to appreciate the fact that if you ask Jesus to go, he goes. He doesn't hang around where he's not wanted. He goes back across the lake to Galilee, and he continues his ministry of teaching and healing. And he leaves, therefore, the people of the garrison, much like he found them. They don't hear his message. They don't receive other healings. They don't get to be transformed by his teaching and by his love. They chose to stay just like they were, rather than accept the change that Jesus was bringing. And he left. Now, when you hear this story, I don't know just where it is that you imagine putting yourself, which part you might closely identify with. If you identify with a man who was possessed of demons, if there's something, something that you have going on that has you so weighed down, so trapped, so cut off from the people and the places that you love, then I want you to hear today the good news that God wants freedom and health for you. God wants liberation. God wants life for you. God sees you as a precious child, and God wants to help bring you back to a place of wholeness, of healing of mind and body and of spirit. It's not going to look as instantaneous as the man in the story, but Jesus does bring new life. And if you want some help, some help taking the first steps along that road, please come talk to me. 
But I don't think that's where most of us are. So where do we put ourselves in the story? Perhaps we'd like to think about ourselves as the disciples. They're not explicitly mentioned in the story once they get out of the boat, but they're there. We know that they're there watching what Jesus is doing, having their minds blown once again by Jesus and who he is. And I would guess that's where we like to find ourselves, just as a faithful disciple, standing there next to Jesus, believing and trusting in his power. But today, I want to suggest that we think about putting ourselves in a different place in the story. Let's take just a moment to consider the times that we're not a faithful disciple next to Jesus, but instead we're a garrison. Where are those moments in our lives where our faith fails? And we end up being one of those people watching what God is up to, and we end up freaked out by how much change is going on around us. One of those moments in life when we would rather just keep life the way it is, nice and tidy, everything we've come to know and trust and depend on, instead of moving into a new reality that God is offering to us. You know, we like to think that Jesus only brings sweetness and goodness and light whenever he comes, that everything is just instantly better when Jesus is around. But this story reminds us that sometimes when Jesus comes, we have to make a change. Sometimes when Jesus comes, we have to work on our own stuff and let go of some things before we can see the goodness and the power and the, the beauty that he brings, just like for those garrisons. Sometimes the transformation that God brings means letting go of what we know and trust in order to allow something new and better to be born. Now, there are a whole lot of examples in the life of the church that we could use to illustrate this point of being afraid of letting go of what we know in order to encounter something new. But something that I think about in this realm are the worship wars of the 1990s. And in some places, those worship wars lasted a lot longer uh, than just into the 90s. But for the most part, this has been settled in churches around the country. But there was a time, and some of you were probably around and in leadership in churches even in this time, when people inside established churches who had worshipped traditionally forever and ever, when people said, you know what? It, it might be kind of cool, actually, if instead of hearing the organ and the piano and the choir sing on a Sunday morning, if we had music with guitars and drums and a little group of singers. Wouldn't that be great? And there were places where that kind of happened easily and there was a transition made, but there were other churches that freaked out. I mean, they freaked out. They thought that people with guitars and drums were ruining everything. They thought that having music like uh, sounded on the radio was the worst thing that could happen in worship and it would destroy the holiness of Sunday morning. It would remove the presence of God from the sanctuary to have drums in there. And many a fight was waged in church council meetings about how properly we should worship God. And now we can look back at that and say, that is silly. Especially as I'm preaching to you, contemporary worship crowd. We know, that is silly. And thankfully, most churches now are a lot like St. Paul's. Where here, some of you say, I really love the hymns of, and the piano and the choir but I wish the folks that go to contemporary worship, I wish them well. I hope that they have a great time in worship and that they experience the love of God. 
And others of you, maybe some of you watching right now, say, you know, I really love that music of 1045 worship, and I can live without ever hearing another hymn in my life. But I'm really glad that some people like traditional worship and that it's meaningful for them, more power to them. And then there are some of you, quite a few of you here at the church, actually, I think, who say, what's the difference? I can worship God in both styles. Everything is just fine. It seems to us like a silly fight, these worship wars, to be so wound up about a change in worship style. But 25 years ago, it was not silly at all. It was serious. And it was hard for churches to figure out how to welcome what God was doing, how to change, how to allow for transformation, how to see a new thing that God was up to. Here's the thing, church. We may have settled the worship wars, but God does not stop bringing transformation. God just doesn't stop offering us places for new life and growth. So we're not arguing anymore over drums or guitars, but we have plenty of things still confronting us, things that are causing us fear, but things that might actually be tools that God is using to bring health and life and love and hope to the world. You know, I think this might be true actually about this moment and the movement that's growing following the death of George Floyd. I am no, by no means condoning everything that has gone on in the last month, please know that. I think there are excesses that are happening in, in plenty of places. I'm not a fan of looting. But the core of the movement, the core of the movement that is allowing for everyday conversations happening in, in all kinds of new places, that reaching out with education, uh, things like people learning about Juneteenth for the first time, or the Tulsa race massacre. Things that are allowing black voices to be heard and black experience to be lifted up into our national consciousness like it never has before. I think that that might be God doing something new. And I, I think it might give us some hope some hope about this slow work that we have to do to heal and repair the deep wounds in our country caused by 400 years of slavery and segregation and racism. And of course, we have a long, long, long way to go, but I think our scripture story reminds us today to approach even big moments of change, even things that seem to knock us off kilter, even things that might seem scary, our scripture reminds us to ask some questions in those moments like, what might God be doing here? What am I scared of losing? What do I have to gain? You know, if the Gerasenes had asked questions like that, they would have never sent Jesus away to the other side of the lake. You know, or... Maybe this movement for racial justice isn't something scary and unsettling to you at all. Okay, I suspect there's something else. I suspect there's some place where you are being confronted with change and you aren't sure that you want it. So I want to invite you to consider today. I want you to uh, reflect. I want you to pray and ask God, is this a moment like the Gerasenes experienced? Is this a moment where God is trying to do something in my life or around me, but my fear is making it hard for me to see what God is up to? That's a powerful question, and one that can lead us bravely into change. Change is never easy, but friends, God is faithful. 
And God uses change, even unsettling, disruptive change, to bring about good in the world. God uses change to help us heal, to help us grow, to help us become closer to God's own image in the world. So my prayer is that we would have eyes and hearts open enough to welcome Jesus among us in whatever form, in whatever place he comes. Thanks be to God. Amen.